You should be in front of the altar of the Fatherland, a huge wide monument with statues and columns overlooking a traffic circle called Piazza Venezia. To start this tour, go to the second level balcony. You'll be standing right next to a big bronze statue of a man riding a horse. Pause the tour, enter the gate, and take the steps to the right to reach the balcony where the statue is. If the gates are closed, stay here and you can use the skip forward button to start the tour from outside the gates. I'll meet you at the statue. Okay, now you should be standing on the balcony of the monument called the Vittoriano under a big bronze statue of King Vittorio Emanuele riding his horse. You're looking out over the balcony towards the traffic circle in front of you. This is not just a traffic circle. This is our Tiananmen Square. This is our DC Mall. This is the center of our political demonstrations and celebrations. But just like the scurrying traffic around the circle, making up lanes, cutting each other off, breaking only when absolutely necessary, our Italian leaders have had a terrible time over the past hundred years uniting the country. Finding common ground, truly believing in this country called Italy. And this giant monument actually attests to that problem. Here, I'll show you. Turn around and face the statue. Walk to the right side of the statue and step back from it a few paces. The rider is the king of Italy, Vittorio Emanuele II. He was the king at the time of Italy's unification in 1861. You see, before 1861, Italy was actually made of various small separate states, some of them dominated by foreign countries like France, Austria and Spain. The war of Italian unification brought these countries together into what we now know of as Italy. And ten years later, Rome was declared its capital. But it was the capital of a shaky new nation. Redrawing political lines was one thing, but actually feeling part of a new nation was another. Many Italians felt then, and still do now, their local and regional identity much more than their national identity. So this monument, called the Altar of the Fatherland, is kind of like advertising for this new concept of a unified Italy. It's huge, right in the dead center of Rome, and in the center of this monument is the king, facing two enormous Italian flags. Like he's saying, hey, look everyone, now we are Italians. See the red, white, and green? Please stop thinking of yourself as Venetians, Sicilians, or Florentines first. Well, advertising is one thing, but the real national identity is another thing. And I'm gonna tell you about how for the last hundred years, Italian leaders have been struggling to forge that national identity. My name is Enrico De Aglio. 
For the past five decades, I've been covering Italian politics for our major newspapers, magazines, and public television. Come on, let's enter this political drama. Turn your back to the statue and descend down the stairs. I suppose one of the moments in my life when I felt most unified with my fellow Italians, most patriotic, was when I joined tens of thousands of protesters here in the streets of Rome in the traffic circle below you in May of 1977. Okay, at the bottom of the stairs, stop on this landing for a moment. Stand out the way of the other people and look out at the traffic circle again and imagine it full of workers and students. Police sirens blaring, screams, gunshots and smoke from tear gas. We were marching to protest the murder of a young demonstrator by the police a few days prior. We were trying to push out the conservative government that had been in power for 30 years, which were also the first 30 years of my life. I was ready for an end of the party's bankrupt ideology, which was based on big business interests and Catholic Church hypocrisy. Okay, now keep walking down two flights of stairs until you get to the slower landing. In that moment, I felt the country may finally evolve into a truly participatory democracy. Until one radical segment basically led the entire movement off a cliff. This jump off the cliff is the story of the bizarre kidnapping of the most influential politician of the time, Aldo Moro. But first, I want to take you back a little further in time. Once you are in the lower landing, keep walking until you are in front of a marble grave with an iron wreath above it. This tomb is guarded day and night by two soldiers, two perpetual flames and two Italian flags. It's the tomb of an unknown soldier from World War I the first tragedy post-unification Italy had to face in its history, with 1.3 million victims between 1915 and 1918. In a sense, this war was the first major event that psychologically united the Italian population. Much more than that guy up there on the horse did. But it's the kind of unity that only endures during wartime. After World War I, the people sort of went their separate ways, the way people do after a war. A vacuum was creeping into the national consciousness. And into that vacuum stepped one man, Benito Mussolini. Before we get into the dark comedy, I want to tell you that these soldiers always make me laugh. They make me think of this Roberto Benigni movie I saw, in which one of these soldiers is trying to make the other laugh. No matter what the one soldier does, it doesn't work. The other soldier never cracks a smile. Go ahead, die, take a selfie with these guys and see if they crack a smile. You can use the apps camera feature to take the picture. Okay, now we are going to cast a dark cloud over this traffic circle 
going back to the days when the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini used this space for his public events during his reign from 1922 to 1943. Let's go down the stairs now. Watch out, don't slip on the white marble. We are going to exit the monument from the same gate you used to enter. This may seem sort of silly in retrospect, but when he first came to power, Mussolini was seen as a savior. He was strong, confident, and convinced Italians that they were living in the greatest country in the world. Great. You should have exited the gate at the bottom of the monument. Walk until you're standing on the far right side of the fence in front of the monument. You should be standing under a column topped with a bronze statue of an angel with wings. Once you're standing under the bronze statue, put your back to the statue and face the street. You should see some planters with small shrubs, and to the left of the planters is a crosswalk. Take this crosswalk and stop when you get to the other side. Great, you made it. Now step out of the way of foot traffic. Turn back and look at the monument where we just were. Now look to your left down the big wide avenue. This is Via dei Fori Imperiali, Avenue of the Roman Forum, the road built by Mussolini in the 30s for military parades and large celebration. This road basically tells the story of Mussolini's political philosophy. He tied to unite Italians around the concept that they were rebuilding a great Roman Empire, like the one in the days of Caesar and Augustus. We were once great and we will be great again, he said. So it makes sense that Mussolini would need a road from his office, which is on the other side of the traffic circle, to the great monuments of antiquity like the Forum and the Colosseum. Do you see the Colosseum down at the end of the street? Mussolini encouraged citizens to believe with passion, to believe in their work, their families, and a great Italian empire looming in the distance. Facing the Colosseum, turn around 180 degrees and follow the sidewalk around the traffic circle. We are eventually heading to the center of the traffic circle. Mussolini renamed the circle the Forum of the Empire, just to make his intention clear. In the 1930s and in the 1940s, all of Mussolini's grand parades with soldiers, dignitaries and children marched down this very street. Cross the small street in front of you, then take the crosswalk on your left to reach the middle of the traffic circle. Everyone was wearing black shirts. It was a kind of forced identity, a forced unity. There's a lot of traffic here, but there will be gaps in the traffic when you can safely cross. I'll meet you in the center of the circle. Okay, great. You should now be stopped in the center of the traffic circle. If you're facing the altar of the Fatherland, I want you to turn to your right 90 degrees 
and face the rust-color building, focusing specifically on the second-story balcony with the flag. This is the balcony where Mussolini used to deliver his speeches. It's the center of gravity of his Roman Empire fantasy, and it's where in 1940 he declared Italy's entry into World War II. Here is what he is saying. La parola d'ordine è una sola. The word of the day is inclusive and obligatory for all. Categorica e impegnativa per tutti. Essa già trasvola ed accende i cuori dalle altre. It already spreads and sparks hearts from the Alps to the Indian Ocean. Victory! And we will be victorious. A single word. Victory. It's a gateway to unite the nation. Mussolini's speeches had a kind of hypnotic effect on the masses. They felt a clear sense of purpose. They were one nation. But Mussolini's exaggerated, almost comical performances covered up the widespread violent suppression he was using to control any dissenting opinions. During fascism, you just had to obey. Just do what he told you to do. If you had an opinion different from Mussolini's opinion, you were going to jail. Come on, we are headed inside Mussolini's office building. Facing Mussolini's office building, walk across the crosswalk. Okay, turn left and walk a few feet to the corner. Turn right once you get there. We are going inside this building to its interior courtyard. Walk down the sidewalk, keeping the building on your right. This Renaissance mansion is called Palazzo Venezia, and Mussolini first moved his office here in 1929, picking it for its central location. Okay? Do you see a white marble bust of a woman at the end of this sidewalk? Just before that statue, you're going to turn right into a driveway. On the other side of the driveway is the marvelous courtyard of Mussolini's offices. Okay, turn right in here and walk into the courtyard. You're going to pass under a little archway and then walk into a courtyard in the center of the building. Once you are in the courtyard, stop just where the pavement turns to gravel. Suddenly, from the chaos of Piazza Venezia, we get into a quiet place. This is a stage indeed, but not a loud commanding one like the balcony. On the second floor, to your right, was Mussolini's office, 
which was known as the Sala del Mappamondo, and it's an enormous room with a big globe in the middle. Now in front of you are two paths leading into the courtyard. Take the right-hand path, walking next to Mussolini's huge office. Imagine you're walking into his office now. It's empty except for a desk at the far end of the room. Mussolini would sit at his desk, staring down visitors as they made a sort of veneration walk. Now you should be passing some columns on your right. Walk past four columns and then make a right just before the corner column. You should then be standing in the shaded area under the colonnade. You should see a small stairway next to the wall and at its base is a metal grating in the floor. Notice that this grating leads to a sort of safe room. Look deep into it. Maybe use your phone's flashlight to see better. This may be the entrance of a secret shelter where Mussolini could hide in case of attack. There are many tunnels under this palazzo, most of them no longer accessible. Some secrets of Mussolini's dictatorship could be hidden somewhere in this maze below your feet. But Mussolini never got to use the safe room. He was taken completely by surprise. I'll tell you the story while we sit by the fountain in the middle of the garden. With your back to the building, walk out of the colonnade and to the fountain in the center of the courtyard. As you get close to the fountain, notice that there are white marble benches ringing the fountain. Find a bench that is empty and sit there to hear the rest of Mussolini's story. Mussolini spent his last day here on July 25, 1943, right after the Allied forces had started liberating southern Italy. He was invited by the king to pay a visit to the royal palace. Once in the royal palace, Mussolini was told he needed to be taken away for his security. And instead, he was arrested and put in prison outside of Rome. A month later, as the Nazis had passed to northern Italy, they got him out of prison and installed him as a puppet ruler in the north. Finally, as the war was ending and the Nazis were fleeing, Mussolini was discovered by the Italian resistance fighters, disguised in peasant clothing. They killed him and had his body taken to Milan and left in a public square where it was humiliated and abused by angry mobs. This may have been Mussolini's only public event in which the people of Italy honestly expressed what they felt for him. Okay, we are going to leave the courtyard. Walk past the fountain and go up the steps. Okay, once you walked up the steps, you should see the exit straight ahead at the end of the path. 
Leave the courtyard and wait for me on the sidewalk. Okay, you should be on the sidewalk. Take a right here. You're walking down a narrow street. After the end of World War II, Italy was in ruins. Mussolini had forced his return of the Roman Empire fantasy to the country, but now that the mask had been lifted, there was a void. Into this void, Italy's repressed groups surged forward. The church, the workers' movements and other opposition parties. Okay, keep walking straight across the street using the crosswalk. Be careful, the oncoming traffic can come pretty quickly. I'll meet you on the other side. Now, turn left. And continue walking along this busy street. You should pass the green sign of the Scholar's Pub on your right. We are going to be walking for a full block. I'll meet you at the next corner. Keep walking down this sidewalk. Take the crosswalk in front of you and stop when you get to the other side. You should be seeing a window display with the name Fox Gallery. Stop here outside the Fox Gallery door. Here you're going to find some of the posters from the 1948 election. The first of the newborn Republic of Italy after 20 years of Mussolini's dictatorship. The posters will show you how incredibly divided, but also strangely similar, the communist and the democratic parties are. If there's someone at the counter, let them know you are with Detour. Then, to the left of the counter, you should see some stairs going up. Take these stairs up to the second floor. So pause the tour, Take off your headphones and then put them back on once you get to the second floor. Great, you made it upstairs. Head to the opposite corner of the room and near an arch window you will see a wall where we place some of the posters they used for the 1948 parliamentary elections. We saw democracy at work, but also an enormous divide between the two sides. The Christian Democrats, backed by the United States, and the Communists, supported by the Soviet Union. Both of these parties were vying for control of a new national consciousness that was emerging after the fall of Mussolini and his ancient Roman fantasy. The election posters from 1948 really advertised this split. To feel this split, let's look at a few posters on the wall. Poster number one is from the communist side. We see the symbol of the Christian Democrats, a white shield with a red cross, which represents their link with the church. But the cross has been ripped away to reveal a bloody dagger reminiscent of Mussolini's thugs. Blood drips on the word, be careful. It's suggesting that the Christian Democrats will be violent like Mussolini was. Poster number two is an answer from the Christian Democrats using the same weapon, a dagger, but now it's in the mouth of a Russian soldier. 
He looks like a savage climbing a wall, possibly invading, with the caption, So is this the guy you were waiting for? Poster number three is from the Christian Democrats and uses a skeleton to represent evil Soviet soldiers. Behind the skeleton, you see a map of Europe where bloody communism is spreading to the West. Notice that Italy is only half covered in blood, accurately depicting the north-south divide in which cities like Torino in the north, where I come from, were much more sympathetic to communism. Poster number four depicts a lazy capitalist man in an easy chair, surrounded by the words, While you sleep, Stalin is working. And in the background, we see the USSR's enormous territory. Poster number five is from the Christian Democrats, showing an undecided voter in the voting booth, surrounded by the phrase, While you are in the voting booth, God is watching you. Stalin isn't. And then we have poster number six. Shows a woman trying to guard two Cherub kids from the dark march of a massive Soviet army. This appealed probably to both the mom vote, but also to Italian men, who generally saw the mamma and bambini as sacred. Pause the tour and take your time to look at some of the other posters. I'll meet you outside the gallery. Okay, now you are back outside the Fox Gallery. With your back to the poster shop, cross the street in front of you at the stoplight. Stop when you get to the other side. Once you are across the street, you are standing outside the Bar Gelateria. Okay, great. Now, with the bar at your right, you should see a newsstand around the corner. Walk towards the newsstand and stop when you have walked just past it, keeping it on your right. Italy stands at the crossroads of history as her millions of qualified voters stream to the polls to determine whether she shall remain a free republic or sink silently behind the Iron Curtain, an anxious world breathes easier as Italy meets communism's challenge with a resounding no. All right, you should be stopped just past the newsstand. So yes, the Christian Democrats won, but it wasn't so resounding. The communists got 30% of the vote, and even though they didn't govern the country, their support would increase over the coming decades. And it was right here, in this square, that the Christian Democrats set up their headquarters after the 1948 elections. With the newsstand behind you, look straight ahead, and you should see a beige building with two flags hanging above the entrance. That was the headquarters of the Christian Democrats for almost five decades after the historic 1948 elections. The Christian Democrats remained on top of the communists in the polls throughout the 50s and the 60s. But that doesn't mean the antagonism we saw in the poster shop went away. It actually kept going in step with the escalating Cold War between the U.S., and the Soviet Union. 
By the 1970s, the Communist Party in Italy is getting very close to a majority coalition. It seems like they might actually win the upcoming 1978 elections. And that's when I became a player in this drama. I was a young doctor and an activist in Turin, a city of northern Italy where communism was very strong at the time. That movement and those urges for social justice are what brought me to home in 1975. Here, I became the managing editor of the radical newspaper Lotta Continua. The struggle goes on. And our voice was really beginning to have an impact. Do you remember those protests I mentioned at the beginning of the tour? Well, they went right past this building here, and I was one of the protesters on the front line. Imagine there are thousands of workers and students marching right past you, chanting slogan against Christian Democrat government seeking justice for a demonstrator killed by a cop. Come with me as I walk the same way I did 40 years ago, following the shouting protesters, and go stand right under the Christian Democrats' windows. Again, you're headed towards the beige building with the two flags, the Italian flag and the European Union flag. It was March 1977, and the president and leader of the Christian Democrats was Aldo Moro. Okay, stop here a few meters from the building on the left side of its driveway. Look up to the third floor of the building and then find the third window from the right. That was Aldo Moro's window. Now imagine the scene as reported by his secretary. Moro is looking out the window at us. Things start to get violent. People are firing guns and screaming. We will bring you down. We will kill you. And I'm right up in the front lines. We can feel the end of this regime is near. Moho turns to his secretary and says, Do you think these words will become actions? Well, he had a premonition. Aldo Moho was to become the main character in one of the most tragic episodes in Italian politics. His story will forever change the history of the country and my own history. The next part of the tour will go into the incredible case of Aldo Moro. Facing the Christian Democrats' headquarters, make a left and walk to the corner of the building. Turn right once you get to the corner of the building. Aldo Moro was actually a pretty unique guy. While I hated his party, he had this peculiar way of speaking, of inspiring calm and collaboration in people. In order to find a solution to the rising violence that was going on in the country, he took a bold move to change the rules of the game. He reached out to the communists to try and form a political compromise. At the time, I thought this was ridiculous. How can you mix big business and the Catholic Church with communism? 
but some more extreme factions thought we needed to take strong action against it. Stop at the corner here, right in front of the crosswalk where the traffic light is. But a compromise continued to develop between the Christian Democrats and the Communists. One thing that made it easy was that the two parties were neighbors. In fact, the Communist headquarters building is right in front of you. Is the building with the round marble columns and is a rusty red color. You see it? When Aldo Moro offered them a chance to run the government with the Christian Democrats, they jumped at the idea. But some more radical communists, myself included, thought it was selling out. And one group, called the Red Brigades, promised vengeance. At the time, I thought the Red Brigades were pretty much a joke. A bunch of over-educated Marxists who were living in a fantasy world of total resistance to all aspects of our society. But I was wrong about them being a joke. Very wrong. Okay, facing the communists' headquarters, cross the street straight in front of you. You'll be walking over the tram rails. I'll meet you on the other side of the sidewalk. Now facing the communist building, make a left and walk to the next corner. At this corner, you're going to take the crosswalk straight ahead of you. I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, great. Keep walking straight ahead. The tram lines are on your left. It's March 16, 1978, and Aldo Moro is heading out of his house to give a speech to the parliament declaring his intention to reach a compromise with the communists. But he never makes it there. Straight ahead of you and across the street is a little park area. We are heading there. To get there, you're going to take the two crosswalk you see to your left. One goes diagonally to your left and then the other goes to the park. I'll meet you when you get to the park. Great, you made it across. Make a left and then a quick right and go up the steps to the park. Okay, now you are up the stairs and you should see a path with some stone benches on the right-hand side. Walk until you get to the third bench on your right and then have a seat. You should be sitting next to a trash can. If the bench is taken by somebody, you can stand nearby. You can see the Sorin Vittoriano in front of you, the symbol of a united Italy. Let me tell you how Italy fell apart on March 16, 1978. So again, it was that day that Aldo Moro is going to the parliament to tell them he will form a coalition government with the communists. But on the way to the parliament, his motorcade is assaulted. His five bodyguards are killed and he is kidnapped. The entire city becomes a search area.
Even a quiet spot like this was on high alert after the kidnapping. That morning, I was still in bed, suffering from a flu, when the telephone rang. It was a colleague from my newspaper telling me what had happened. So I went to the newspaper office, and it was a surreal moment. Many of my colleagues were happy. They were excited to be part of what seemed to be a huge moment in history. I remember saying, hold on, this is the most horrible thing that could happen. This is going to destroy all kinds of movements, possibly even our own. The news spread all over immediately. Everything stopped. The shops closed, schools let students go home, TV and radio started to report the breaking news. No one was sure who took Aldamor. The next day, the Red Brigades took credit for the kidnapping in an absolutely bizarre press release. Actually, it wasn't really even a press release. It was more like a, a press hide-and-seek. You see, the Red Brigades made a few anonymous calls to the press, telling them where to find the release. It was in a public trash can similar to the one right next to you. Go ahead, take a look in the trash can. Imagine you are the first reporter to get to the trash can where the release has been deposited. You are about to get the biggest scoop in the 20th century, and you have to pick two cans, crumpled paper, and sticky food to find the press release. When you finally do find it, it's not really a release. It's a mimeographed declaration written in a sort of ancient cursive font with the homemade Brigate Rosse logo at the top. Check out the image on your phone and you see what the release looked like. Then, you start reading the release and it's almost incomprehensible. It says, Each phase of the imperial counter-revolution led by the Christian Democrats in Italy, from the bloody politics in 1950s to the ties with the center-left, who we can assume is the current Communist Party, to the current agreement of the six, having Aldo Moro a political godfather and a faithful henchman, carrying out orders issued from the imperialist headquarters. Brigate Rosse, first missive. The only concrete thing we could understand from the missive was that the Red Brigades were creating something called the People's Court, where Aldo Moro would be tried for his alleged crimes. There was no indication of what the Red Brigades actually wanted, but they made it clear that demands would be coming. As you can imagine, the city went into a full state of emergency. Let's keep going. Okay, stand up if you were sitting on the bench and keep walking in the direction you were going, keeping the benches to your right. Everyone was looking for Aldomoro. All branches of security, the army, the police, secret agents, were scouring home. It was a massive manhunt. Continue walking straight to this intersection. Take the center path. Up ahead of you is the sidewalk 
and the crosswalk you'll be taking to leave this island. Alright, in front of you, to your right, you see a crosswalk. Take this crosswalk and I'll meet you on the other side at the entrance of a narrow street. Okay, now enter the narrow alleyway straight ahead of you and to your right. As you walk in the alley, you see the tables of the Gran Café Roma on your right. Once you pass the café, you're going to make a right into a short tunnel. Go through the tunnel and continue walking to the end of the street. Imagine a street like this. Police are going door to door, insisting on searching each house, trying to find more. At the end of the street, turn left and keep walking straight through the next intersection. Over the next three weeks, the Red Brigades released several missives following the proceedings of Moher style. In bulletin number 7, released on April the 20th, they asked to the government to free 18 of their comrades from prison in exchange for Moher. The state, of course, wouldn't even think about negotiating with terrorists. It was looking grim for more. Keep walking straight to this little square up ahead. You'll be passing a little restaurant on your left. After that, one thing I really wanted to do was to find more and free him. I wanted our people to do that. We tied. We sniffed around for clues. We met some people who had helped source to save house to hold more, but they wouldn't tell us where he was. As the hostage crisis entered the second month, I realized the only way to get more back would be to negotiate with the head brigades. My newspaper published a statement pushing the Christian Democrats and the Communist Party to reach out to the head brigades and figure this thing out, but the government wouldn't come to the table. Okay, keep walking straight to the next intersection. The closest anyone came to finding Aldemar was in another bizarre twist to a seance in which the word gradually was understood. The group informed the police of this possible lead, not revealing where it came from, and the police immediately dispatched an attack force to descend upon the small town of Gradoli, just outside the home. After turning the town of Gradoli upside down, no more. After the kidnapping ended, it was discovered that Moho was actually held in home on Via Gradoli. The police forgot to think of that one. Turn right here onto Via dei Funai. You can see the street name on the building in front of you, just above eye level. After 50 days of captivity, Aldo Moro wrote a letter to his wife, which was like his last prayer. 
Here are some words from that moving letter. My sweetheart Noheta, I am now, I believe, at the final moment. I'd probably be free if just a hundred party members had signed my petition. But that's all in the past. Be strong, my sweet wife, in this absurd and incomprehensible test. Okay, you are coming into a small piazza. Keep walking straight ahead of you and then make a right after the church. I wonder if my small mortal eyes will see something later when the moment comes. If there is light, that would be great. My love, may you always feel me and hold me close to you. All right, you should have just made a right after the church and you're walking with the side of the church to your right. Shortly after this letter was received, after 55 days of imprisonment, a phone call came to one of Aldo Moro's friends. On your right, you should see a black plaque on the wall. Stop here. As soon as that call was received, people began rushing to this little Via Caetani, where you're standing now. The plaque marks the spot where the red Renault was found. They opened the trunk and found his crumpled body shot 12 times by three different guns. Look around. Maybe next to you there are people reading the plaque. Many people keep coming here. This is a crucial place for the history of the Republic. One important part of the story that's not included in the plaque is why here? Why this exact spot? You may have a sense of the answer from the walk you just took. The spot lies geographically between the Communist and the Christian Democrats' headquarters. By putting the body here, they were saying, this is where the compromise gets you. Dead, right in the middle of two corrupt forces. Take a minute to look at the plaque, if you like. Okay, keep walking down the street. Maybe you want to walk slowly past the plaque, but continue walking down the street. For me, this part really commemorates the end of ideology. For a moment, before the kidnapping, it really seemed to me that big ideas were pushing our country forward. Workers' rights, youth voice, poverty relief. And the wheels of democracy were making these ideas reality. But all of those ideas now seem covered in blood. I really hated the violence I have seen and resented the faction of people in my movement who advocated violence. I think it was then that I became what you would call a humanitarian. I didn't need to advocate for a revolution. I wanted to advocate for democracy, non-violence, tolerance and peace. Okay, at the end of this street, make a height. Once you make the height, make an immediate left across the crosswalk. I'll meet you on the other side of the street. Great. Now with your back to the crosswalk, turn right 
and continue walking down the street. So, after Mohor's assassination, the compromise between communists and the Christian Democrats became impossible. Partly because Mohor was no longer alive to negotiate it, but also because the head brigades had deeply damaged the reputation of the communists. Okay, make a left here into this small street. It's just after this empty lot with Roman ruins. Even though the Christian Democrats remained in power, their base was slowly eroding. Voters were disgusted with politics. Once again, we were finding ourselves in a near where there was no unifying force. Keep walking down this narrow street. We are going to stop for a second when we get back to the Piazza del Gesù, where we stopped by the headquarters of the Christian Democrats earlier. In 1992, everything quickly fell apart for the Christian Democrats. Corruption charges that had been lingering in courts for years were upheld, and the judge imprisoned a few key leaders from the Christian Democrats, and the party just collapsed. Stop here for a second. You should be just outside the Christian Democrat X headquarters. I want you to try to understand the impact of this ruling in 1992. All of a sudden, the ruling party is forced to leave the headquarters and take the flag down. It's now illegal to display the red cross on a white shield. But with this closure, a bunch of dominoes begin to fall. Turn counterclockwise to the left of the X headquarters and you see a big church, Santa Maria del Gesù. In 1992, all of a sudden, the church doesn't have a clear party to support and implement its family values. Turn counterclockwise once more. To the left of the church, you have Palazzo Altieri, the home of the Italian Banking Association, whose big business values had been a centerpiece of the Christian Democrats' policies. They are also set to drift after this decision. In essence, the end of the Christian Democrats' power created an enormous political vacuum, a vacuum that would soon be filled by one man, a small man, but with a big, big personality. Okay, keep walking straight ahead toward the Fox Poster Shop where we stopped earlier. So with your back to the entrance of the Christian Democrats' headquarters, take a left and head to the corner, passing the newsstand on your left. Now, who was this man who stepped into the vacuum? Well, you'll probably recognize the name, because in just a few years, he became the most popular Italian in the world. Silvio Berlusconi and we are heading now to his mansion. Okay, you should be at the intersection now, where the poster shop is. We are going to cross the street, and I'll meet you on the other side, in front of the poster shop. Now, at the end of the crosswalk, walk straight ahead, up a little street, keeping the poster shop on your left. In the 1980s and the 90s, 
Most Italians were familiar with Silvio Berlusconi as the owner of a soccer team and several TV channels. He was a businessman, not a politician. Make a hard ride here and head into the small street. For me, as a journalist, his rise to power was a shock. Maybe all of us in the news media underestimated him. We were surprised by his success and the way this outsider managed to completely change the political game. His campaign was based on the latest trends in advertising and commercial television. His posters were slick and branded perfectly compared to the opposition's standard message and lower production value. Bent left here following the street. In fact, this music you're hearing was his campaign theme song, Forza Italia, which means, let's go Italy. It was a big hit. Keep walking straight ahead in the same direction you were going. But the music and the glamour were just a smoke screen. The backstory is different. I investigated Berlusconi and I discovered that at the time his companies were nearing bankruptcy. Okay, take a hike here. He must have been very concerned that the leftist government would have started an investigation into his failing companies. And it would have been revealed that much of the seed money of his companies came from the Sicilian Mafia. So Berlusconi the politician solved the problems of Berlusconi the entrepreneur. Follow the street here as it bends to the left. The guy who helped him is now in jail for mafia. Okay, at the next corner we're going to make a left. Keep walking straight here. You should see a little piazza coming up on your right. The large building you're passing just before the piazza is Berlusconi's mansion. We are headed to the little island in the middle of this piazza where the cars are parked. So take a right here and stop in the middle of this island where you see the plants. Then turn and face Berlusconi's mansion, Palazzo Grazioli. It's number 15. You should see a driveway going to the center of the building and possibly some secret service car going in and out because Berlusconi still lives here, part-time. So to actually become the Prime Minister, Berlusconi used his skill as a salesman, and I believe payoffs, to pull off a political miracle by forming a coalition with both separatist and nationalist parties. One advocating a break from Italy and one advocating a unified country. Incredible! but it reminds us that the weight of money can also be a strong unifying force in Italy. And just three months after Berlusconi formed his political party, he won the prime ministry. He succeeded in a sort of mass hypnosis. People believed him, and thus he conned an entire nation into helping him pop up his insolvent businesses. I was 47 then, and I was working in Milan as a TV journalist. I was very upset when I realized that Berlusconi won the elections. Many of my colleagues and friends felt the same. 
What a humiliation, a friend of mine told me. We have delivered our country to a salesman. As I wrote in my book about Berlusconi, I was living Berlusconi's victory as an injury, as if we Italians were just demoted to the League of Ridiculous Nations. Our political voice was a loud burp in the middle of an opera. Now, looking closely at this building, you'll notice that there is no sign designating it as an official government building, and that's because it's a private residence. It's a mansion that Berlusconi just leased and made the center of his administration. It was a gesture saying that he wasn't really involved in politics. Instead, this is a residence for nobility, with a large spiral staircase, a huge formal dining room, and a giant bed called the Lettone that was a gift from Berlusconi's buddy Vladimir Putin. Even some of Berlusconi's staff and secretaries lived here. It was a giant clubhouse of lackeys, all here to serve and defend Berlusconi. And Berlusconi's downfall didn't require a world war. Just some wild parties. We are going to look inside one of these parties. Walk back in the direction you came from, keeping Berlusconi's mansion on your left. We are going to peer into an important window on the side of the building. You see, Silvio was at his core an entertainer. He started his career as a singer on cruise ships, and it was this image of himself. As the ultimate Romeo that actually brought him down. Keep walking down this narrow street, keeping the Palazzo Gazzioli on your left. You'll notice that there are three wrought iron street lamps on the side of the building on the second floor. Stop when you are even with the second lamp. As an investigative journalist in the year of Berlusconi. I was trying my hardest to open up this building and its activities to public scrutiny, and I found an ally in the Secret Service. Stop here, and I'll tell you that story. All right, you should be stopped now. The second street lamp is above you on the second floor. Now count the windows around the street lamp. You should count nine windows. I want you to look at the middle one. This is where Berlusconi's office was, and imagine there is an inconspicuous delivery truck parked here, packed with wiretapping equipment and manned by the Italian Secret Service. They are intercepting Berlusconi's phone calls. On a Wednesday afternoon, you might hear something like this. Berlusconi is on the phone with a high-paid prostitute, making sure the hired girls are coming over that evening. This is a weekly ritual for Berlusconi to organize parties featuring a mixture of showgirls, prostitutes, and big wigs. This party became known as the Bunga Bunga parties. The name was based on a name Qaddafi gave to his sex parties in Libya, some of which Berlusconi was rumored to have attended. The Secret Service got interested in the legality of these parties that featured underage girls. 
Okay, keep walking down this street and stop at the corner. You'll pass two doors for the scholar's pump on your right. Stand next to the second one, but to the side, so as not to block folks going inside. As a sort of grotesque comedy, Berlusconi's party followed a script including a dinner, bad jokes by Berlusconi, singing, and the later some of the guests, often it was just Berlusconi, moved to a cellar where the girls would perform. You should be outside of a pub with a brown door. Here you have the option to pause the tour, go inside and get a drink, and then sit and listen to the rest of the story. Or you can listen outside here. So back to our story. Besides the enormous moral issues surrounding Berlusconi's parties, the legal problem was that one of the girls was underage. She was called Ruby Rubacuori, which means Ruby the Heartbreaker. And when the story came out, Berlusconi's empire started to crumble. A truly disturbing picture emerged. There was a big trial with 127 girls summoned to testify. It turns out that Berlusconi had rented an entire building for all these girls to live in. These trials went on for years, and they revealed not just Berlusconi's lies, but how good Berlusconi was at creating dramas that everybody wanted to watch. And it was this pull that lay at the heart of my book, Indagine sul Ventennio, which means an investigation into the 20 years. It's a play on words, because Mussolini's reign was known as the 20 years, and Berlusconi also held power for 20 years. And maybe that's what's most startling about this story of Italian politics. It takes incredible fantasies, fantasies that are told over decades to rule the Italians. So I guess it's important that we began the tour at Mussolini's big stage and we are ending at Berlusconi's backstage. This is where I always like to be, behind the curtain. And this is really where our national politics, our identity as citizens, is being created. Right after the unification, the writer and politician Massimo D'Azeglio said, Abbiamo fatto l'Italia. Ora si tratta di fare gli italiani. That means, we made Italy. Now we have to make the Italians. This process, more than 150 years later, is still going on. I am Enrico De Aglio. Thank you for walking with me today.